there's just nothing better. There's, there's not a better piece of meat on a cow than properly cooked short ribs. Yeah. You know, in charcuterie making or curing meat, the magic number is 30% fat. If you get a piece of meat, a ribeye is roughly 30% fat. Like the gotcha. eye, the cap, yeah. like that's where you like a capicola is the neck muscle of the pig. And that's the one perfect cut out of a pig that is exactly 30% fat. The ribeye, the short rib on a perfectly raised, not over fattened cow is 30% fat. It's interesting. It's, it's made for making the perfect lean to moisture ratio. That's so that, so you're absolutely right. It is the, it is the greatest. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. It's good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see you too. What's new in your world? What is new in my world? Man, it stopped raining. That's uh, that's huge for us. That's it's nice. One hell of a wet spring, like yeah. unbelievably wet. So it feels like I got a new lease in life right now because the garden's growing and people are showing up to work. <laughs> how is all the how is all that rain for the uh, yard grapes? God, nightmare! Everything's like three weeks behind. Okay which is problematic for me because, you know, Jess and I have this relationship where I hunt a lot in September, as you yeah, know, yeah. and she makes wine in September uh-huh. and then it really folds over to where I have to help her in October. And then I go with John to go hunt uh, deer in November. So if it lands in November, we're going to have to have that hard relationship conversation of, am I going to stick around and make wine or be able to go hunting? But She's the greatest. And she's going to obviously let me go hunting. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, we're here with, uh, with my very good friend, Eli Cairo from Olympia provisions, dude, you've got such an interesting story and you've, you've seen success with me in one of the most creative ways of anyone I know. Yeah. The most it's super cool. You, you, you've done a tremendous thing, but I kind of want to start at the beginning so when did you get the idea to go to that school in was it switzerland germany switzerland yeah switzerland yeah that's interesting so uh at around 16 years old i grew up in salt lake city and i was lucky enough to get sponsored for snowboarding yeah and i dropped out of high school to pursue my snowboarding passions more so like i was able to go to alternative high school in utah but during the winter time so spent my time snowboarding and my father and mother owned restaurants in salt lake city so i spent my entire life in restaurants growing up in and helping my dad cook and uh, all those things i got pretty scared snowboarding and realized that uh, this isn't for me. I'm not the hydrogen gym key that I'm surrounded by. You know, it's like I, inside of a nice warm kitchen, making people happy with food was more my style. So I called my mom and I'm like, what, this isn't. What scared you? Uh, I was in Big Sky, Montana, tell it very clearly. And it was that flat, light, foggy day. And I was sitting up there with a bunch of other people and a bunch of amazing snowboarders. And they were all super, super duper excited to go jump off a cliff that they couldn't see the landing. 
And I was like, I can do this. That's totally fine. And I'm like, God, do I have to do this? Like, it's kind of my job. I guess I got to kind of, I got to do this and flew off of it halfway down, hit rocks, tumbled, you know, a couple times, puked, goggles flew everywhere, yard sale, so on and so forth, shook it off. And I was kind of like, I don't know if I can do this for the rest of my life because that yeah. wasn't the most fun I've ever had. You right. know, so instantly knew it was kind of not for me. And then the next day, you know, new resort, stand up and try something scary again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it just wasn't, it wasn't for me. So I called my mom and I was like, Hey mom, uh, I don't think this is for me. I'm going to become a fancy chef. I'm going to be like dad. I'm going to open up restaurants, so on and so forth. And we're Greek. And she's like, if you're going to become a chef, we're going to ship you back to Greece and you're going to become a fancy Greek chef. And I'm like, mom, I have, I know how to cook goats over a fire. I, <laughs> I can make enough Hispanic uh, copita to feed all of America. I want to be a fancy chef. I want to go to France. And so she's like, oh, okay. Reaches around calls of the church. Long story short, out of nowhere, somebody calls me from Switzerland and is like, hey, uh, we had an apprentice, apprentice hurt themselves. If you could be here in two weeks, you can get a job. And I sold everything, sold all my snowboarding stuff, sold everything and went to the library. This is pre-internet times for me anyways. Went to the encyclopedia and looked up Unterwasser, Switzerland, said ski resort town famous for curing meat and making cheese. Sold. Sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't it? It's like perfect. Uh, yeah, that was that was kind of it. And then got on an airplane, got on a train, ended up in the middle of this little village up in the Swiss Alps and... The, the the rest kind of played itself out is it it's a pretty fascinating story that one of the things i think you'll relate with the most on the first day i reported to work i walked into the kitchen and into the walk-in and pushed open the walk-in and there was an ibex hanging in the walk-in full fur and horns top to bottom standing in there and i'm like what you know trying to find somebody that could speak enough english for me to be like what are why is this amazing yeah. thing here? And then it slowly explained that they utilize them. Yeah. And that's, that's a Steinbuck in Switzerland, I think. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's a few things that you can hunt on the regular, but that would be something that only occurred, you know, maybe once or twice in somebody's lifetime of hunting there, as I understand it. Correct. Yeah. Very, very rare to be able to hunt uh, uh, Ibex for sure. Yeah. What was that school like? It sounds pretty rigid, pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, it was. So well, I was only supposed to be there initially six months. Like I was going to go there and just be an apprentice and help out and see if the fit was good. Um, as soon as I landed and saw that there was a wild game processor, a meat processor, full bakery, fancy restaurant, and I could ski in and out of my place I was staying. I was like, you're never getting rid of me. Um so I wasn't initially there to go to school. I was just to like be a laborer and learn how to cook. I begged to stay. I did everything I could to uh, make everybody in the village and my bosses love me. You know, my neighbors were cheesemakers and ran a dairy. So I would go over there and flip hay and rotate cheeses and whatever I could. And, you know, we got our meat from the valley. So if they were killing animals in the valley, I'd go down there and clean up after the kill on my days off. I just did everything I could to make them, you know know that I could work and was willing to work, study the language like crazy, and uh, finally begged to go to school. And the apprenticeship, the actual kitchen itself is, it's a different way to learn how to cook. You know, you, you go to work every day at seven o'clock, you work up until around after the lunch rush. So 1.30, then you get three hours off and then you work until about 10 at night. And that just repeats itself six days a week. So you're hands-on with a little three-hour break in the middle of the day. Thank goodness it was in the middle of nature and skiing and, you know, rock climbing in the winter, in the summertime. So I was able to get out every day and enjoy it. Um, insanely precise, very high stress. Everything had to be perfect. Yelling, slapping, <laughs> getting kicked, getting bullied. All of the things that go around when you picture a classic European kitchen are very, very true. Um, but it was at the right time of my life. I knew I didn't have a whole lot else going on for me. And I loved it. I loved the idea of learning the language, learning the culture, learning how to cook at such a high level and learning how to butcher and cure meat at that level. So all the punishment was way worth it. And how did all of that lead to Olympic provisions? 
so after my apprenticeship, uh, I, I, I moved to Greece quickly to run a restaurant on an island, but my whole goal was to move back to Switzerland and air cure beef um, over natural mountain air. So they kill their beef in uh, like a vintage every winter. They kill them in the in December and they salt them and they dry them with mountain airs with slatted windows and a river that runs underneath this curing facility for humidity. And I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, my sister called me. She had moved to Portland, Oregon from Salt Lake city. I was like, Eli, you've really got to come check this place out. Portland is an amazing place for food. Like everybody's making wine. There's unbelievable beer. There's coffee. You know, I gave her the eye roll. I was like, yeah, that's just, I'm in Switzerland. Come on. Flew into Portland, went downtown to the Portland Farmer's Market and tried Rogue River Blue Cheese. I don't know if you're familiar with that cheese, but it's one of the best freaking blue cheeses in the world. (laughs) (laughs) And they were selling out like crazy. I'm like, who are these people buying this crazy blue musky molded cheese? And then the next thing's these amazing lettuces and everybody's so particular about their wine and beer and the coffee. And I said to Michelle, hey, uh, let's get some salami for our picnic that we're going to have. She's like, I don't know if anybody makes salami. I was like, what do you mean? No, there's this many people and nobody makes salami. I was like, well, let's get some pate. And there's something, somebody's got to cure meat here. And there just wasn't, it just didn't exist. And then I went to a grocery store here and I bought some American made salami. And I just kept like the whole week was just me telling Michelle, like, this isn't cured meats. This isn't my version of what I've just learned for the last five years. There's a way to make these completely different than what is offered here. And so I told then my fiance, my ex-wife now, uh, that I'm not going to live in Liechtenstein, that we're going to move to this town called Portland, Oregon, and let's go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And off you went. So the business is called the Olympia provisions. Now it started out as Olympic provisions, um, yeah. obviously a, a nod to your Greek heritage there and a big shout out to the folks at the uh, Olympic committee for being a bunch of assholes and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> being so threatened by your sausage business that, that yeah. they've made you change your name, bunch of, yep. bunch of heroes, a bunch of heroes. We, we uh, yeah. So it was in the Olympic mills building. I, I clung on to it because of my Greek heritage, but that's why I took the name. I was okay. going to provide salami for the Olympic mills. Didn't yeah. think anything about the Olympics. So once they said I had to change my name, we're pretty, we think we're funny. We think we're real, really funny. So <laughs> when once we got the letter, we hand wrote the Olympic committee a letter saying, hey, thank you, Olympics, for showing um, interest in my small independent meat company in Portland, Oregon. I've noticed that your athletes look pretty protein um, deficient. <laughs> I'm willing <laughs> to give your athletes a stick of salami and I'll keep the name. Thank you, Olympics Provisions. <laughs> and they responded back with the driest letter ever being like, we need to talk to your lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Different level of humor over there. The <laughs> uh, pretty funny. Oh. Uh... Well, there, uh, yeah, that's, that's another thing, but Olympia provisions rolled on. What do you make now? So, yeah, uh, gosh, I make 2009. It started out. This is a good fact for you, James. Yeah. We were the first USDA plant in the history of the state of Oregon to be able to ferment meat naturally, cover it in mold and sell it over state lines. So that's what I started up doing, just being the first salami maker in Oregon. That's all I wanted to do. Yeah. It's just ferment salami. Then that kind of caught on. So we made hot dogs, pâtés. Now we do bacons, hams. Um, if you can make it out of pork, except prosciutto and dry cured meats, meats, I make it. And now I even make pet treats out of all my byproducts from the pigs I buy. So I have uh, as little waste as humanly possible. Yeah. And that's, that's very true. I've been fortunate enough to tour your facility a couple of times and the amount of equipment that you have to ensure that you're not wasting anything and the meticulous care for that equipment and for the space, like everything looks like it's brand new all the time. Like I, I would literally feel comfortable eating off that floor on any day of the week. You know, it, it's amazing what you've done to keep that place perfectly sanitary in an unconventional way, because you also have rooms that are completely full of molding meat and that freaks people out. They don't know that that's okay. 
Oh yeah, for sure. The USDA included when we started didn't yeah. know that that was okay. Yeah. You know, that a lot of that I definitely learned in Switzerland, you know, the, the cleanliness, the organization, the upkeep of the rooms, it takes hard work and setting that tone to make sure it's all operating uh, squeaky clean. And the, the USDA doesn't hurt. You know, you have to show up every day. They inspect my facility daily. daily. They pre-op it uh, multiple times a week. And so it all helps in my, I, I love a perfectly clean, organized place. The whole world in Portland could be going absolutely crazy, but you step inside of that meat plant and that's the place where it is absolutely organized, clean, and everything's where you expect it to be. And that's just the way it's supposed to be. Yeah. I would, I would lay on one of those tables for a surgery and feel confident <laughs> in it, you know? Yeah. We, we use ProQuad. We're ready to go. We should be surgery, uh, yeah. surgery sanitized for sure. Okay. So fermenting meat, typically when yeah. we think of fermentation, we think of beer, some type of, you know, alcohol process, maybe something like, uh, like sauerkraut or kimchi or whatever. Uh, we don't typically think of fermenting meat. So what, what does that even mean? So fermenting, all of those that you named um, go through essentially the same process of using a lactic acid of some sort. Beer, of course, produces ethanol. So it's a little different, but of course you can use a lactic acid to get different types of beers. Um, you're using a lactic culture to consume a starch of some sort. 90% of the time it's uh, dextrose, so it's a mono sugar, a very simple convertible sugar, and it releases a byproduct. Most of the time it's lactic acid. So when you're fermenting meat, you've inoculated it with a culture that's consuming dextrose and releasing lactic acid, dropping the pH. Okay. So we, we use what we call a degree chart. So you hold meat directly in the danger zone or the prescribed danger zone, 80 degrees, 100% humidity, and you have a clock that starts ticking. The second you get into that danger zone, you have to race with the good pH, the good pathogens to outrace any bad pathogens. So you need that pH to drop quicker than let's say, let's choose one, listeria, staphylococcus, any of those fun ones before they have a chance to expand your pH has to drop to a, a level that they're not going to uh, flourish or expand. Okay. That makes, did that make sense? I kind of got lost. Yeah. I no, I, I get it. I get it. Um, so you're trying to get a specific type of mold to grow um, mm -hmm. and outcompete any bad ones and by, by changing the environment that, that that mold can function in. So the, the first step is just internally in the meat. That's okay. just the lactic acid. That's a culture inside consuming, dropping it. And then, and then the mold's the next step. Mold, oh, mold the, okay. the penicillin mold is the most fascinating step right after it. So in this, once you've got the pH to drop, and then the salt that's in there is bringing the soured uh, moisture out of the meat. And in that meat, there's a small amount of yeasts on it. And that lands on the outside of the casing. And that's when penicillium, or better known as penicillin, is how we, most people know it as. That's when it catches on. And that mold blooms on the outside of those salamis and attacks any other kind of bad bacteria on the outside of it and allows the mold to bloom and plays a huge point in a flavor making sure there's no bacteria on the outside, but it also keeps the outside of the salami moist enough to dry natural with the air that's flowing over the outside of it. And this isn't a new concept. Um, curing meat like this isn't like something that, that Eli came up with in Switzerland <laughs> in the early 2000s. It's been around for a minute. Um, yeah. So last year I took a, a quarter of a whitetail buck that I shot like August or October 1st, 2nd, somewhere in there. Took the whole hind quarter. I put like a pound of, you know, Morton's kosher salt on it, rubbed it in, hung it in a game bag. 10 days later, I took it out of the game bag, knocked the salt off back in the game bag. And I hung it up in just the breezeway between my shop and my woodshed. And I didn't crack into that thing again until April. And it was completely white, hard on the outside. It lost a ton of weight. And I cut into it and it was still moist and red and I ate some and it was freaking incredible. It tasted super, super good. And it was mild and melted in my mouth. It was amazing. I took, I posted a video of it and I took a ton of heat from people across the internet who are, you know, of course, experts, some of them legitimately, some not. And uh, they're like, you know, how, how dare you? It's like, I'm pretty sure that 
Like this has been around since before refrigerators by a minute. Yes, sir. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, obviously that's not an ideal environment like what you provide, um, but it worked. Like I was able to take nothing but meat and salt and air and preserve calories, preserve meat. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's where it all started is, you know, before refrigeration, uh, we would kill and hunt animals and we had to figure out how to preserve it. And the easiest way was, you know, we're talking pre-fire is they realized dipping it in salt would start pulling the moisture out of it. And it's kind of, as we were talking in it, when you're using salt, as opposed to a fermentation step, like you did a dry cured meat, you're racing uh, the moisture inside of the meat. To, yeah. to keep it from spoiling. So once you put it in that salt, it's clicking. It's going to pull out a lot of salt. You know, most people leave it under refrigeration or refrigeration degrees. And now that's kind of a variable. So if you're at 60 degrees and it's salted and you're out for like a week, you're going to pull out a lot of moisture. In an ideal situation, it's under 44 degrees with 2.5 or 4.5% salt. That's going to pull all the moisture out of it. And exactly like you saw, once you took it out and the salts pulled it out, it formed that yeast on the outside from the, the, the meat and the liquid, the suspended liquid inside. And that attracted that beautiful penicillin mold that's all over the world. And that also protected it and attacked any bad bacteria. So that's how we cured meats forever. Yeah. The most fascinating thing about it is, is once you, it, did it preserve the color where you, well, I remember seeing it, it was like bright red and bright pink. It looked really good. It didn't have any black discolorations or anything. right? Yeah, no, there was no black in it at all. Uh, and that's, that's a very interesting thing because nitrate plays such a, a it's a shunned word in America, but it's such an amazing um, part of the curing meat. And depending on what salt you used, it could contain a natural percentage of nitrate in it. Um, and so back in the days that when we first started curing meat really, really well, they would find these salt sources that had a natural amount of nitrate in it. Um, for example, fog, fog on places where they have a lot of sea salts, fog contains those areas that the, the, sea, the sea salt is catching sun and they're drying it with the sun. If it fog goes over the top of that, they track a lot of nitrate in that salt naturally. And so they'll put the nitrated sea salt saying it's pure sea salt and the nitrate preserves the color of the meat. And then it, of course addresses botulism, which is very rare in dry cured meats, but more common in salamis and sausages. Interesting. Okay. So you're, you're also a hunter. You spend, as you mentioned, um, a couple months out of the, of your year hunting as much, as much as you can, you're going out after, um, upland birds a lot. You're going after deer, you're going after elk and you're successful at it. When you are bringing home an elk, for example, are you thinking about ways that you can do something more interesting with that meat than just, uh, you know, steaks, roast and burger, or, or are you so, so over, you know, all your cured stuff at work that you're like, whatever, just, you know, do what's easy. No. Yeah. No. To, God, I would say the, the most, <laughs> there's so much that I love about hunting that I, we could probably, I could just pick your brain and ask you about it. But the, you know, I've spent my entire life since I've been a teenager, uh, making people happy through food, right? Like, you know, the, the way things taste and, uh, at some point you get kind of bored of beef, pork, lamb, old cows, young cows, young pigs, uh, you know, you name it. And, the every time I shoot a new animal or I'm lucky enough to eat one of them, I'm, I'm back to a kid in a candy shop. They all cook different. There's all sorts of different things that uh, I like to see how it changes from another animal to another animal or how it tastes and how not to waste anything. You know, I, that that's part of I learned in Switzerland is how much can you utilize off of this animal to make unbelievable uh treats and snacks, be it jerky sticks or summer sausage to riettes, to confis, to pâtés, to how does the heart and liver taste in a pâté and so on and so forth. So yeah, long story short, I, it gets me more excited than anything to start playing with new meats and older, older elk or younger elk or cows and so on and so forth. So are you trying to make salamis with them? Uh, I, of course I've made, uh, salamis. I don't do a ton of salami production cause I'm really, really picky about it. 
Okay. And uh, I don't want to ruin it. And I, and in my USDA plant, I can't ferment it and hang it next to my salami sure. that's being distributed yeah. across America. Yeah. And as much as just loves me, if I built another curing chamber in our house, I think that might be the, <laughs> yeah. the final drop. Come sure. home and she has more <laughs> ammonia smelling <laughs> uh, elk in the basement. I think it might be too much, but. So if somebody, if somebody were to build, um, build a room for curing or, you know, convert an old refrigerator or something like that. How would mm-hmm. they go about it? What do they need? Super simple. Uh, you need around 58 degrees. So you gotta, you gotta trick it out to operate and not freeze up at a certain temperature. Um, you can do it with fans. You need humidity and then you need a small way to rotate that hair. So okay. You have to have like a, a muffin fan in there, a ref, uh, something that controls temperature. You know, you could, a plug in, plug out thermometer. I think you can set it, you know, you can plug them into the wall, say it's 58, have a thermometer and it'll turn your refrigerator off when it hits that temperature. And then a humidistat and a humidifier in there. Okay. And you're off to the races and, and clean it real well, real well and start enjoying. It's 58 degrees. What's special about that temperature? That's a, that's a great question. And again, that's what in my humidity, that's where it blooms. Okay. So that, that's where 58 degrees is a very comfortable, the molds seem to do well between the uh, 55 and 62. It's like, that's where the molds really act in the, they, they bloom well and they blossom. If they go underneath that temperature, they're really, really slow. The skin on the outside of the casing can dry. You can hard, you get case hardening, so on and so forth. And over that, they'll start to grease out. The, the sausage itself will start getting a little bit too much fat on the outside of it. And the molds won't bloom on the outside of it. Um, just kind of in that window of 58 degrees. From a safety perspective, if you're going to make salami, one the the one key step that I that I would say please please use nitrate be safe on on that step and then a pH meter or a way to chart that your fermentation actually happened is is the is the two things that I would say is this the, the once you get it to drop um, you're completely fine if the pH drops you're you're gonna you're not gonna get sick and if there's nitrate in there you're not gonna get sick is that an expensive device. No, not anymore. Um, It's, it's relative, you know, you can use pH strips. People do do that. You know, like the things you, you, the, the paper litmus uh, test. Thank you very much. (laughs) Litmus test (laughs) that you, you, you can use those. You can make a slurry and like blend it or whatever, and use that in your salami sample. And they do work relatively good. And then, uh, pH Hansen, HR Hansen is the name of the company and they sell like mobile ones. And for a home person, I think it's, I think you're out of there for like 75 bucks and you'll have it for the rest of your life. Just keep okay. your filament moist yeah. and you'll be good to go. Perfect. Um, what does smoke do that, that also aids in curing? Yeah. It, uh, long story short is it just does not allow the outside of the sausage to have bacteria grow on it. Um, we, we noticed way back in the day when people didn't want mold or spoilage bacteria on the outside of their smoke or of their meats, they would run it over smoke and it would slowly but surely change the chemistry on the outside where bacteria can no longer form on it. Um, and long story short, we started craving that. With all of these molds and the smoke, they're thousands of years old now and our bodies have slowly but surely have learned to love them and crave them and associate them with meats. And selective as well, you know, we, with the molds, for example, you know, the, the way we got to blue cheese molds or the way we got to the, the molds in which I use Pedicosi and Androvese is so much selectiveness. You know, they, they, one of the, my favorite stories is why they chose these molds was partially because when you walk into my dry box, James, the first thing you realize, I'm sure you smelled this, is that ammonia smell. Yeah. And it releases, it's kind of almost pungent. It really affects people. If you have any kind of allergies or um, hay fevers, it really can choke you up in a, mer- in a hurry. Um, and initially when those molds bloomed, they didn't have a lot of ways to keep insects out of their farms or where they were curing them in their caves, but they realized that this mold released enough ammonia that the flies would not land on the outside of the salamis and you know, plant its eggs and there wouldn't be maggots inside of it. So they started leaning towards these really pungent ammonia producing molds on the outside of them. Kept using these, kept appropriating them until these were the molds that turned out the best. And that's part of the flavor and also part of the safety steps. Um, Interesting. Isn't that fascinating? 
It is fascinating. Have you, have you heard the Roquefort, the Roquefort one by chance? Ro- the penicillium Roquefort, the blue cheese one? I've, oh, tell me more. It's So the story is when the Romans conquered the town of Roquefort, they were, they were, I think they grew rye. The, the wheat that they made their bread out of was rye or one of those, one of those breads. And they would make these, these rye loaves. And when the Romans came, they hid uh, all their cheese and all their breads uh, up in this cave. Once they rolled through, they, you know, they smuggled up there. It was way too long. They opened the door and the rye formed this crazy blue mold on the outside of it that, uh, you know, eventually started feeding off of the cheese that they were drying. They were starving, of course, and they bit into it and they were like, whoa, this funky cheese tastes kind of amazing. What happens if we take this blue mold and fold it into our cheese or our rye crust that is molded, fold it into our cheese, and it, it turns into a blue cheese that we've learned to love? Now, from here on out, I think I'm pretty sure Rockford is still protected by uh, AOCs, so the laws in Europe that you have to make this way, that if you get your mold spore for that blue cheese, it has to come from a loaf of bread. That's amazing. Isn't that so fascinating? To Slowly think of, <laughs> of mold is something that we would have to like build regulations around so that we can preserve it and make sure that it stays the same. Yes, yeah, I love that stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, Iberico, for example, my favorite piece of cured meat in the entire world. You know, the the, the pigs, the, the black Iberico hams from Spain on the Iberico Peninsula, you know, they spend their entire lives, everything they do eat how they're born, how they're raised, what they can consume during what type of years um, is all protected. To be a true Iberico, they form a very beautiful black mold on the outside of them through a big part of their life. And they get the highest rating on the outside. They know this black mold comes from the ocean waters that are around there. And on the outside of it, it forms a black mold. Um, very unique to that. Like Parma, the prosciuttos, same process, no mold makes it a Parma prosciutto. This black Iberico mold is what makes Iberico such a special flavor as well. And those hogs uh, graze on nuts quite a bit, right? Chestnuts. Chestnuts. Yeah. Yeah. I killed a pig in South Carolina one time um, on a hunt that we did with, uh, with dogs and it was full of acorns and that's the best pork I've ever had. All right. Acorns is what they, acorns are what these pigs eat. I said chestnuts, okay. acorns underneath oaks. Yes. So incredible. So yeah. incredible. The best. Yeah. 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 Nut, nut finished animals. If you're if they're lucky enough to feed them is, is such an amazing thing. It's, it, that's a big part of, uh, I mean, have you ever tried my salami saucy sundae arl, James? The one is just sea salt where I just yes. ferment it and just have, that's the one that I, I think is so fascinating. If people have the time or the palate to like enjoy it because it changes throughout the year, wherever I'm getting my pigs or if I ever get a specific pig and I just ferment it and give it the salt, whatever it's been consuming throughout that year, you taste it instantly. Yeah. So if you buy that product in January through February, when they're feeding their pigs corn rations, it tastes just like a Frito. You would never notice it. You'd be like, wow, this is a Frito. And they go, it's a very expensive pork fatty Frito. Uh, and then I've been lucky enough to have farmers that have, you know, access to peach orchards or cherry orchards and running the pigs over them. It'll change the texture of the fat, but the flavor is completely different. It's really fascinating. So your cookbook, um, goes into pretty easy to understand detail about how to make all this crazy stuff. That's awesome. I'm um, so happy that you, you find it easy. That makes me so happy. Oh yeah. Cause I'm, I'm not, I'm not a chef. I'm barely even a, a cook. Uh, I'd like to make sure that I have enough food for like myself and people around me. So for me <laughs> to be able to follow that stuff and, and be able to do it on, on simple products, like, like on a Traeger grill or, or mm-hmm. even on like your, you know, the, the pit grill that you have in your backyard, whatever like you can do it. It's not that hard. Yeah. And that was a big goal for me is I, I, I everybody instantly asked me how to make a prosciutto or a salami. And I, that's like learning how to ski on a black diamond. 
Yeah. There's so many easier places to start your learning how to cure meat. Just like you're saying, if you if you can if you can roast a beef or make roast beef sandwich, that is charcuterie. And that's the same thing as making a capicola or smoking a bacon. You're just adding salt at a certain ratio and then slowly roasting it and smoking it and creating one of the best products ever. And so I started it that way in the book. Start super simple. Don't need a lot of machinery. Don't need a grinder. Don't need, need a knife in an oven. And slowly but surely kind of take you through it up to fermenting and dry curing. Okay. Well, let, let's give the people a sample. You head down to Costco. You buy yourself a pork belly. Cut mm-hmm. it into thirds. You crack, mm-hmm. you crack open the book because mm-hmm. you're going to make your own bacon. All right? Yep. You're an American and you're going to make some freaking bacon because bacon is our our gift. And we are free. Yes. (laughs) How do we do it? How do we do it? It's really, 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 really awesome. I would you, you follow the ratio in the book. So it's 2.4% salt, a little bit of Instacure pink salt in there and a little bit of sugar. You coat the outside of it. You put it inside of a Ziploc bag. Put it in your refrigerator for five days. Then you're going to do the hard part. You're going to flip it over in the bag. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to put it back in the refrigerator. Make sure the salt got distributed kind of nicely. After the, on the 10th day, you're going to take that out and you're going to rinse it. At that time, you're going to choose your cooking apparatus of your choice. I've done it on anything from a Weber to of course, Traeger, by the way, Traeger, if they've done anything, is talk about making smoking meat look easy. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like it is, <laughs> it's so <Yes>. awesome that <laughs> I, can, I can roll it to my father-in-law's house now and you know, I've been smoking meat <laughs> a whole other level and he can outsmoke a chicken by me on his Traeger. Like, no problem. <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> so essentially the, the, the goal is that you, you got to get the, the amount of smoke that you want on it. So if you're using a Weber, you start a small charcoal fire, you get the wood type that you like, be it apple or a hardwood, whatever it is, and you get it to produce smoke. So a low simmery kind of smoke and you just that take an hour, maybe depending on where you're at a couple hours, just keep smoking it, smoking it, and then pull the, the bacon off and smell it. As soon as it starts smelling like the level of you're like, Ooh, that smells like where I, I like my bacon to smell like smoke. Some people love it to smell super smoky. Some people like it to be a hint. And then the, the next goal you have to do is get it over 144 degrees. So you can either crank up your grill, crank up your Weber or take it off and put it in your oven. And then once that gets to 144, pull it off, put it in your refrigerator, and then you're the hero of the breakfast table and your family is going to want you to do it every day. And it's not that tough. It's just not like the, it's so simple. I mean, it's, it's literally like a couple minutes of work on the front end and then some really light smoking on the back end. And dude, it's so incredible. So incredible. Baking a cake, baking a cake is way harder. Way harder. Wait, wait, you have to measure so many things. <laughs> Dude, I get frustrated with baking because people talk about how, you know, you just follow the directions. Exactly. Follow these directions. Exactly. I can do that. I can read step, do step like a champion. But then I come across things and it's like, okay, you need to use, you know, a quarter of a teaspoon for this. I'm like, okay, that's a very precise amount. And then it says, two eggs they don't know how big these eggs are yeah right i I just i can't handle that kind of stuff it drives me crazy i have to look for like what i think is the most average sized egg in dude yeah struggle with baking but making bacon on the other hand i do not struggle with i crush it i also use your recipe (laughs) on pork spare ribs and i made um bacon spare ribs and oh awesome dude talk about crushing it at Christmas. Like yeah. people couldn't get enough of that as bacon on a stick. Yeah. I mean, bone in bacon. So with the entire spare rib on the bottom of the belly and yeah. slicing it like with the entire baby back on, or I guess you would call it the, the short rib on top of it. Oh my God. It is the greatest <laughs> thing ever. And it's another, another trick about the bacon thing is God, even bad bacon is so good. It yeah. still renders, it still crisps up, it's still salty, it's still yeah. just so delicious. Yeah. I made uh beef short ribs this week uh with with your short rib recipe. Oh, from the book? Uh yeah. Took took three days to do it. And I think that's just one of the best pieces of beef you can possibly have. Oh my god. So um, nice. 
And as like a ride or die ribeye dude, it hurts me a little bit to say that. But mm-hmm. if you just keep following that rib bone south a little ways, um, you're right under the ribeye and you're on the, the middle of the ribs, basically, yeah. where that's where short ribs are cut from. And if you do that right, there's just nothing better. There's, there's not a better piece of meat on a cow than properly cooked short ribs. Yeah. You know, in charcuterie making or a curing meat, the magic number is 30% fat. If you get a piece of meat, a ribeye is roughly 30% fat. Like the gotcha. eye, the cap, yeah. like that's where you like a capicola is the neck muscle of the pig. And that's the one perfect cut out of a pig that is exactly 30% fat. The ribeye, the short rib on a perfectly raised, not over fattened cow is 30% fat. It's interesting. It's, it's made for making the perfect lean to moisture ratio. That's so that, so you're absolutely right. It is the, it is the greatest uh, yeah. And have you, have you tried, so have you tried to make bear bacon? This is something I I haven't done. And it's 90% of the reason I try to hunt bear is I just have to make a bear bacon. Okay. Well, you should come out and shoot a bear with me then. <laughs> yeah. I just love that. <laughs> that was my non-direct indirect invite. <laughs> and then, and then you can do it. Like, let me know how it goes. <laughs> I've got a real serious love hate relationship with, with bear meat because I've made it wonderful and I've made it inedible and Mm -hmm. it it kills me to cook a piece of wild game poorly, but, uh, yeah, spring bears, man, they're tough to, to make much of anything good out of for me. A lot of people like it. Like, you know, my buddy, bam, his wife loves spring bear meat. It's her favorite meat. Uh, Cody rich in Montana, his wife absolutely loves spring bear meat. I don't know, but fall bears, I enjoy very much. And, uh, you know, just a shout out to the world bear tags for residents and non-residents in Oregon cost $16 and 50 cents. $16. You can get two of them in the fall. The season starts on August 1st. So if you want to do an out of state hunt and you want to go hunt in the mountains, whether it's in a sheep country or mule deer hunt country or, or in the canyons or in the deep, dark forests, like you can have a really awesome hunting experience and you can do it for bear in the fall that are eating berries or eating in orchards. It's wonderful meat. It's not that expensive. It's a tag you can get every single year and you're helping out our elk and deer populations. I encourage you to do that. Shoot those bears and eat them. But me and Eli are going to try out some bear bacon. Yeah. And actually, if you do shoot one of those Oregon bears, please try my bacon recipe and then tell me how it turned out. Apparently, I am the worst bear hunter in the world. Well, uh, maybe the worst, but I suck. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there is one other thing I'm aware of that you're bad at. And uh, evidently, that's uh, spearing octopus in Greece. Oh, my God. It is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it is simply impossible and also okay when i when i lived in greece i was like so convinced well you'd see like you know a a freaking 10 year old kid will hop off a dock and come up with an octopus with a trident so i'm like i got this (laughs) i I tried for an entire summer i bet you i I logged more hours of a trident kill an octopus with it you know my now i it's it, the old style trident style spear yeah. where you had a big rubber band and you you let it flip and it was they're impossible I, I think that they the greeks speak a different language to them and they like coax them in with their zeusisms and whatnot to catching them because i don't think it's humanly possible <laughs> so my the reason that i'm talking about this is my favorite things on the menu at your restaurant is uh is beef short ribs and octopus and absolutely phenomenal and the fact that i like octopus surprises me about myself like that's not something that i ever saw coming the only reason i ever had it in the first place is we were eating there together and you ordered it (laughs) yeah you know and it's amazing it's so good so tell me a little bit about that tell me about that that small town that um that you were in with eric and and just that whole scene like that was amazing it's uh, the man if you haven't had time to go to the greek islands and not the main ones but if you get uh, there's so many islands out there and they're so accessible go get to coast get to any of those islands and then ask for a taxi to a smaller island that a village is on and just see the culture don't spend 
five days there and just watch the fishermen be able to eat out of a tavern and so on and so forth. Um, the, the, the village that I was in was on the island of Calibnos because it was climbing. And we happened to find this little backside fishing village out in the middle of nowhere, the classic Greek setup, one taverna right at the end of the fishing dock. And uh, it was just unbelievable. So everyone around there is goat farmers, goat herders, cheesemakers, fishermen's or, or garlic. And they made a pretty large amount of different spirits and booze throughout the hills there. Okay. Sounds like the house that I grew up in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, I think that the best part of this town was the, 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 the dock that all the fishermen came into um, the bar at the end had like one of the best bar tricks I've ever seen ever. And the bar girl at the time, she was 15, the daughter of the owner of the Taverna uh, would take any tourist watch off of their hand and chuck it as far as they could into the bay and make his daughter go get it. Wow. <laughs> so you're, you're sitting there like, can I see your watch and grab it and throw it? And his daughter would run out of the kitchen, jump into the, the, the and it's like, if you tried your hardest, you wouldn't be able to hold your breath long enough to like get halfway to the bottom of this. And people would just be freaking out, me being one of them. And she'd come swimming up with your watch, be like, oh, I found it. Here you go, Opa. Have some Uzo. Break a plate. <laughs> best it's so fun and they would tenderize the octopus that they caught on that dock right yeah exactly they, they they bring it up and they beat it they add salt to it and it releases all of its toxins it gets slowly but surely tender and it's and then they hang it to dry out in the sun so no refrigeration and uh there's two different ways to cook it some some people cook it at that point directly on the grill and it's a little bit more chewy but very very delicious and then the other way is to cap it with wine and olive oil and slow simmer it for a few hours and then grill it yeah. is, the, is the most traditional ways to do it but yeah. Didn't somebody like break a foot during this deal? That would be me. Yeah. <laughs> that was the worst experience ever. Thank you, Eric Moore. I, I'm sure you'll listen to this, Eric Moore. Uh, the last day we were there, he was going, he did his apprenticeship with me, but he's a good friend of mine. Uh, last day of our climbing trip in Kalimnos there, uh, we were climbing, doing stupid things like you would when you're young and climbing and just kind of falling whenever we wanted to. And I took a stupid fall and was falling face first down the cliff and my foot got caught in the cliff. Ooh. And Eric ran and tried to catch me. Long story short, we're up on the side of this mountain and I knew Eric had to get on a, an airplane that next morning. And I was supposed to start my cooking job the very next day in the Greek island. And uh, he took me to the hospital. <laughs> so he drives me to this Greek hospital <laughs> and I was in a world of pain, like just screaming, you know, just, ah, oh, this hurts. My foot's swollen so big everything sucks. And, uh, Eric swings me into this hospital, goes in, he's like, there's nobody in there, grabs a wheelchair, brings me inside, puts me up <laughs> on the table, <laughs> goes walking around. And like, I'm just looking at my foot being like, God, how did I do this? Didn't really like take it. I didn't assess the situation around me. And he finds this guy that walks in classic Greek guy smoking a cigarette. And at that point, my Greek was still very rusty. And he just looks at me and he's like climbing, just said stupid and walks out. And uh, Eric looks around and there's just like bloody catheters and like unclean knives everywhere. And it's just the dirtiest place. And he's like, I just don't think you should let them cut you open inside of this place. <laughs> solid <laughs> advice. Solid, solid, solid advice. And he, uh, yeah, he took off, he took, he had to take off that day. He left me there. They, they made me this hilarious cast and I couldn't get a crutch because they were in Athens and it was a week out. So they gave me a stick. So I had a crutch and a stick and no money. And I was getting, I had to get out of the hotel I was at. So I convinced a taxi driver, a, a water taxi driver to drive me to the backside of the Island where I could just camp. Oh, they gave me of course a bottle of pain pills, which is new to me. It wasn't really big. So I took <laughs> a 12 pack of beer, a bottle of pain pills, went to this deserted Island and told him to come pick me up and, uh, I think it was seven or eight days later, but <laughs> I had a ton of water. <laughs> the, the, the cure, this is, a, this is a very Greek cure too. They're like, yeah, make sure you soak your cast in the ocean every day. Make sure that's going yeah. to, that's going to fix it. And that's what I did. I would just, once a day, I would swim out as far as I possibly could from the Island and then swim back and then have a pain pill and drink a beer. Then 
I lost track of what time it was, like sure. what day, like did the whole, okay, I have this many bottles of water. Yeah. And I was like, but this is my fifth day here. No, it's my fourth day here. Fifth day here. Oh Lord. And then it like, I was convinced it was one more and I thought I was out there and I was plotting my path with a stick and a clutch on how to get back to the island. I don't think I've ever been quite as happy as when that guy turned that corner and I heard his little motor coming. Oh God. Relief. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. So then did you end up staying there and cooking? I did. And that, and that was a, a wake up call for sure. So that, you know, a Swiss kitchen is precision. Like, of course, if you're making a hundred gallons of bouillon, you know, they'll measure out the clothes and we had a huge kitchen brigade and the kitchen I walked into in Greece was the exact opposite. You know, it was four cooks, 300 guests, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And we just made food, you know, like we, we if we got lamb, it came in fur on right in the middle of the, the kitchen and we cut the fur off and make lamb. It wasn't like baby back or, yeah. or tenderloin. It was like make lamb. If it was octopus or fish, you get a crate of fish and you make fish. And it was so much fun, but it was so unbelievably, they didn't pay me that, that didn't help. Uh, but it was, it was so fun to like, Hey, I spent these time learning how to cook and butcher. And now this is my first job out of it. And these guys have been doing this forever. And, really got some chops if you know what I mean yeah it would be so hot because they didn't have AC in there that we would take our we had to be wear like fancy European chef coats that we would dip them in water and put them in the basement deep freezer and so right around noon when it was like a gazillion degrees we'd run into the basement <laughs> and step into a, a frozen chef's jacket <laughs> make it through the rest of the service dude yeah, that's fun. next level oh so fun um, younger times <laughs> if uh if people want to order like can they even order sausage or or uh or charcuterie from olympia provisions like is that a difficult process <laughs> no it's an easy process please please, <laughs> yeah. please do olympiaprovisions.com we have salami subscriptions we ship out daily we ship it to every state in america yeah. So yeah, for sure. Please try the product. I'd be very flattered. What type of, uh, I don't know, what kind of volume are you doing these days? Like how many, how many hogs are you, are you going through in order to make all your product? Uh, the hog number. Now that is a difficult question for me to answer. Uh, this last year, this year we're expected to do my first 1.5 million pounds of processing. Wow. Um, so divide, divide that by two, 75 <laughs> <laughs> 1.5 million pounds incredible yeah, yeah that's it i know and, and again it's like you know when it's 2009 one man employee back there scrubbing and now to see that the people actually bought this molded fermented meat and i get to talk to you about making it it's pretty freaking awesome i'm very Dude, very lucky well you're extraordinarily hardworking. your sister's really smart yeah, you guys are, are a powerful team and you've done an amazing thing and you've hired really good people. You know, you've hired veterans that, that help run your shop like, like they're running a shop, you know, back when they were a troop. And yeah. Uh, yeah, no, you, you've done an amazing thing and the product speaks for itself. Like it's my very favorite stuff to eat. Encourage oh, folks you. to check it out. Um, what about the cookbook? Where can they find that? Uh Amazon, but preferably the same website that you're going to sure. order the salamis off of yeah. for sure. Um, yeah, we also operate restaurants here. So if you're ever in Portland for um, any reason, please let me know. Yeah. Ask James to get my number. I can get it to you. <laughs> we'll spoil you. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's uh, it's Olympia provisions. You'll, you'll find it. And yeah, gosh, how long will one of those salamis keep like in, in a refrigerator? So that's interesting. In, in theory, they're shelf stable. And okay. so that's kind of a, a, a plight for me. They're never going to go bad. You know what I mean? You're not going to get yeah. sick. You're not going to get sick from it. But if you leave them outside of a Ziploc or not in a crisper, I don't add any additives in them to stop them from drying. So they're going to continue to dry. The molds on the outside are going to continue to live. So, you know, th th there's a preconception in America that salami should be a shelf stable 
merchandised product out on a counter, kind of like a Slim Jim or a jerky stick. That There's an amazing place for that. And I love those products. But a salami in my world, that's like the way you would handle like a bloomy rind cheese or a cheese. It should be kept in refrigeration out of the airflow. Long story short, they should be about a month if they're handled well outside of a product. After that, they're just going to start tasting a little. The texture will be a little harder, if you know what I mean. Yeah, but still very good. I mean, I've eaten I've eaten salamis of yours that have been in my fridge for a year. And um, yeah, they're a little bit harder to cut, but they're Correct. still v- very, very good. I guess the point that I'm trying to make there is... You're, you're buying something special, like you're buying a piece of art that's edible that you can share with friends and you can tell an interesting story about, and, and you can dip into the history of meat preservation within our species. And, you know, the, the thousands and thousands of years of doing this, you know, even before we were cooking with fire, we were figuring out ways to preserve meat. Um, I think that the, the knife predated fire by like 30,000 years. Like it was really significant amount of time and same way with this preservation. So you'll, you'll find that there's something old and, and maybe even atavistic about, about experiencing this meat, but don't feel like, okay, I opened the package. Now I've got to eat it all this week. Like you're going to be okay. Like you can, you can kind of yeah. spread it out over, you know, a month of events and, uh, and then order more because you're probably going to want to. For sure. And, and that's, that's a good thing you say. I think of anything that I brought to the American cured meat movement is, you know, we don't do any kind of smoke and mirrors. I've moved it back to the, I've, I've done it the way we've done it for a thousand years. I'm not using milk powders or quick cultures or fermenting it. I'm doing it with real smoke, real heat, real fermentation, real molds. And that's, they're hard to find. And it's, there's a million easier and faster ways to make cured meats, but they don't taste like the cured meats that I want to produce. And yeah. we'll see. It's not, it's not for everybody. You know, it's blue cheeses and molded crazy funky meats with real ingredients for some people. It's not them. I appreciate that. That's totally fine. Yeah. Well, you're, you're gentler than I am. <laughs> you also have a great palate. You love, you love good food. So yeah, yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> well, buddy, I appreciate your time. We're getting late into the evening here and I don't want to take up any more of yours, but oh, again, I appreciate you very much and dead serious about the bear. Uh, oh, August, I got to get it done early August. Like, I don't see why not. Let's just go do it. Really? Early August. Do you think that's a possibility? Heck yeah. That's when the berries are out. Why not? God, yes. Let's do it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, yes. not at all. That's what you're saying. <laughs> I don't, I don't joke about these things. <laughs> that's true. Who am I talking to? Take your words back, Eli. Oh right. man, that would be amazing. And thanks so much for having me, James. This pod, I love this podcast so much. You're doing, I, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent in my garden, loving your guests and oh, enjoying thank it. You. It's so fantastic. You're doing an amazing job. Thanks thank for all you, you brother. Do. I appreciate it. All right. We'll catch you later. Yeah. Talk to you soon. I'm working on building a house this year, which is something that I know nothing about. And I love that. It's exciting. Uh, Everything is a new challenge and there's lots of challenges that pop up. The other day we're laying out rebar and getting ready to pour concrete for the foundation of the shop. That's going to be next to the house. And one of the guys that was there that was helping one of the construction crewmen, I looked over and he had a Stanley thermos sitting on the end of the trailer. I said, how do you like that thing? And he goes, oh, I love it. I've had it for a decade. Like, you know, if you find any environment where people are out there working hard, working hard with their hands outside, no matter the conditions, you're probably going to see a Stanley product there. It's something that just goes with that blue collar labor because that's what this product is doing. It is out there working just as hard as you are. It's going to be there as long as you are. It's going to be there after you're done. It's something that that I feel passionate about with every piece of gear that I take either into the woods or into the workplace. Like it's got to be able to outwork me and I work really hard myself. If you are also a hard worker, and I'm sure that you are, then you could probably appreciate the same type of gear. If you go to stanley1913.com and you use the discount code six ranch, that's the number six and the word ranch, you can get 25% off just about any of their products. And I encourage you to do that. They're a great supporter of this show and a great supporter of this audience. Again, I love you guys. And I just want to pass this, uh, this discount and the savings on to you. If you want something from Stanley, I encourage you to get it.
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.